Hello all, and a warm welcome to episode number 19 of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. I'm your host, Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast of the title, and I thank you guys for joining me this week. How's everybody doing then? First month of the year done and dusted? Where does time seem to go? It will be summer before you know it. I think it's on a Tuesday this year, from about half one to four o'clock in the afternoon. I'm fed up of it being so cold now as well. I'm sure I'm part reptile. I need warmth to flourish. Thank you very much again for all of your continued listens and support, plus the very kind support that has been shown on the Patreon page for the show, with big thanks to my latest patrons, Amanda Furby, Ferrin Nash, Coco Dobbs, Vicky, Mo Lilliet, Andrea Mannerin, and Jason Abercrombie. It's very much appreciated. And there's a bonus episode now up that's exclusive to subscribers for less than the price of a pint of Guinness. That's got to be worth it, eh? Plus there's the offer of other stuff available too. The details, should anyone be interested, along with all the usual social media links, will be up in the show notes for this week. So it's about this point each week where I recommend either a blog or a podcast. But as it's listener week, I'm not going to because I'm going to go let this week's content speak for itself. I have a constant invite out for contributors to the show, of course, and as I'm a very firm believer in paying stuff forward, I have two different cases this week that each come from a different listener and contributor to the show that I'm so looking forward to bringing to you. And each will cover a different aspect of crime. There's an unsolved case, and a case that's a bit of a diversion away from what we usually cover on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. Each case you'll hear this week is entirely the work of listeners to the show and is presented with only minimal instructions to each creator and minimal addition from myself in the listener's own style of writing. I find it proper great to be able to be extending out and showcasing content from others. It was by doing this, and kindly being given the opportunity to do so by a very good friend of the show, that led me to start the show that you hear now, so it's my privilege to be able to do the same thing. Links to the respective creators will also be in this week's show notes. As always, though, please be advised that this week's episode may contain content that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, so discretion is advised. With that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast and friends this week as we look at a pair of cases from Listener Week. The first case covered in this week's episode is a bit of a departure, as I said, from the usual that we cover on the podcast. It's not a murder, it's not a sex crime, but it is an interesting tale and it's been superbly researched by Gavin Cook, listener from the Rhonda Valleys in South Wales. He's a big Sopranos fan like myself, although the ending of the Sopranos? This spurred Gavin on being a fan, and he runs a blog site and page called Kingpin Lords of the Underworld. That covers tales of the most notorious and brutal gangsters and crime lords. It's well worth having a look at, and another string to Gavin's bow is that in his capacity as a video editor, He's produced content for stuff like True Crime Garage in the past, which I'm sure is a name many of you will know. There's even possible talk of his own podcast coming out, which I think could be a fantastic addition to the true crime community. So watch this space. And here, in Gavin's own research and style of writing, is the case of Operation Julie. Trigaron is a market town in the county of Ceredigion, in the Midwest region of Wales, lying on the River Brennig. I should tell you before I go on any further this point, there's quite a lot of Welsh names here, so bear with me for the pronunciation. 
The River Brennig nestles in the foothills of the Cambrian Mountains near the source of the River Tavy. In the 19th century, it was a thriving market town and an important stop for drovers on their routes through Wales driving livestock to English markets. The town's traditional market, Fair Garon, was granted its royal charter in 1292 and is still held today. It was the market town for the scattered agricultural communities in the broad fertile countryside to the south and the rich landowners with extensive holdings in the uplands to the east, the home of many sheep and few people. We've all heard the jokes about whales and sheep, I'm sure. To the north was Coarse Caron, which was a fertile land when drained, and to the west a hilly region with self-sufficient farmers on small holdings of just a few acres. But despite the green grass and rolling hills, fertile land and bountiful crops, Trigaron has also had its share of bad seeds over time. Thomas Jones, otherwise known as Tumshon Catty, was born around 1530 at Trigaron. On the hills and valleys around Trigaron were once the playing fields of this highwayman, thief and prankster whose exploits were legendary throughout the district. Regarded as a handsome man of many faces, he could swap between the fine robes of a gentleman and the rags of a peasant to suit his mischievous deeds. Tumshon Catty earned a reputation as a sort of Welsh Robin Hood, roaming the rugged west and mid part of Wales, robbing from the rich, but somehow forgetting the bit about giving to the poor. It's thought that he had some formal education, and from the tales told about him, he appears to have developed from a common thief and highwayman into quite a crafty and clever conman. On Tregaron's main square stands a statue commemorating him, and his will is displayed in the town's museum. Also, there's a town trail named after him that takes you to locations directly linked to him. Later in life, this lovable rogue is said to have cast off his villainous ways and married Joan, also known as the heiress of Ostradvin, and is the daughter of Sir John Price, and they went to live in a grand house near Trigaron. He's said to have become a wealthy landowner and a justice of the peace even, well qualified perhaps for sitting in judgment on others. When he died aged 79, this Welsh Robin Hood was considered a pillar of society, much respected and much beloved. Also in the middle of the 18th century, Matthew Evans kept an inn in the town. He had two sons and a daughter who were celebrated robbers and collectively known as Plant Matt, which means Matthew's children in English. They lived for several years in a cave near Devil's Bridge, which still bears their name. They terrorised the district and would give to their friends a glove to act as a passport and identify them to their brethren. It was difficult to apprehend this trio because of the narrowness of the entrance to the cave, which made it impossible to storm. After several years of success, they committed a murder and eventually were caught, sentenced to death and executed. Historically, one of the important industries for this area was wool and woolen products. The Doldre part of the town was renowned for its knitting, and these products were sold locally as well as taken to markets to the southern mining communities of Wales. But then in the mid-1970s, a new product took over. Police were first alerted to the possible existence of the drugs network in 1975, when a Red Range Rover belonging to Liverpool University chemist Richard Kemp was involved in a fatal crash near McCunthleth. A search of the vehicle found shreds of a wrapper, which when reconstructed, spelt the words hydrazine hydrate. 
a key ingredient in the manufacture of LSD. Now LSD, or more commonly known by its street name of acid, was invented in 1938 by Swiss scientist Albert Hoffman while he was researching the medicinal uses of a crop fungus. It commonly causes visual and auditory distortion with trips lasting up to 8 hours. It began to gain popularity as a street drug in the mid-1960s but was banned in the UK in 1966. So this crucial lead gave police their first vital clue into a drug ring operating in West Wales. Richard Kemp had been recruited in 1969 by Cambridge author David Solomon to manufacture the drug, initially at least, as part of a social experiment to bring world peace through mind expansion and an evangelical drive to transform human consciousness itself. David Solomon wanted to bring everyone together through peace, love and harmony, and his weapon of choice was LSD. During the late 1960s and early 1970s, Trigaran and its surrounding areas saw an influx of what are described as hippies, who were looking for an alternative and idyllic lifestyle. At the time, journalist Lynn Ebenezer, great name, was a reporter at the weekly Cambrian Times. He remembers the hippies with houses and families and says they were likeable social people who got on well with the locals and there was even talk of a local football match being played between two teams of hippies. One such couple settled in the area. Richard Kemp was a brilliant chemist and technician, and he and his partner Christine Bott were influenced by the teachings of Dr Timothy Leary and the Brotherhood of Love, and were firm believers that LSD could change society for the good. The discovery in Kemp's car prompted the establishment of Britain's first combined drug-busting operation, led by Dick Lee of the Thames Valley Drug Squad. On the 17th of February 1976, a meeting at Brecon involving a number of chief constables and senior drug squad officers was held and resulted in a multi-force operation being formed. This was the beginning of Operation Julie. One of the radicals who came to assume a key role within the organisation was Leaf Fielding, an anarchist former public schoolboy who dropped out of university following his introduction to acid at the age of 18. He began as the tableter, turning the raw chemicals into individual doses, and he later took over the distribution network. As he recounts in his memoir, called To Live Outside the Law, it was the promise of building a new society and seeking a way out of the Cold War's nuclear standoff that drove the gang at first, rather than money. He recalls, We were all extremely idealistic. I was convinced that this was the answer to the world's problems. We saw it as a new awakening out of the terrible impasse that the world had got itself into. In a mission which, at times, took on a comic element, specially trained police officers spent most of 1976 undercover in the Welsh countryside, disguised as hippies. Di Rees, then a drug squad inspector with Dovid Powys Police, was one of those who transformed themselves, recalling, We grew long hair, we wore jeans, we looked quite scruffy, he remembers. To have worn a stiff collar and tie would have been impossible. In order to divert suspicion away from themselves, they staged fights with local police, who were largely unaware of the hippies' true identity. This necessitated the introduction of female officers, including Sergeant Julie Taylor, after whom the operation would eventually take its name, and who was immortalised in the Clash song, Julie's Been Working for the Drug Squad. 
On one occasion, they were also left listening to Radio Cymru for an entire day when sheep gnawed through the bugging devices they planted in the Tregaron home of ringleader Richard Kemp. But despite these more light-hearted elements, the operation, involving 11 police forces over a two-and-a-half-year period, resulted in the breakup of one of the largest LSD manufacturing operations in the world, supplying which, at the time, supplied 90% of the UK market in the drug. A network was set up to supply the UK, and eventually two-thirds of the world with LSD. It was estimated that the product made in Trigaron was supplied to around 100 countries. The distribution side was the responsibility of Alston Frederick Hughes, known locally as Smiles, and his friend Paul Healy, known locally as Buzz. The two men were very popular in the area, approachable and generous, often buying bottles of whiskey for the locals. Lynn Ebenezer, who knew the pair, said, They got on well locally, and you'd never hear a bad word said about them. They were not bank robbers or anything like that, even though they were involved in drugs. People didn't look at them as crooks or bad people. So the key to the success of the operation was the isolation, not simply because it was in rural Wales, but because of the secrecy and discipline of the personnel involved. So the group was split up into a cellular structure, much like organised crime or a terrorist group. If one part was disrupted, the rest of the group could continue. Although locals were mostly unaware that there was a major drugs ring in the area, some definitely thought something odd was going on, mainly due to the big spending and the flamboyance of the people involved in the area, and the police were also suspicious of this as well. Regular discussions were held for knowledge sharing with drug squads across the UK, particularly with the then Detective Inspector Dick Lee, who was head of the Thames Valley Drug Squad, and comparisons were made of the prices and availability of drugs in the respective areas. Detective Inspector Richie Parry was in charge of the Doved Powys Drug Squad at the time, and he noted that it became apparent at that particular time LSD was more widely available in the Doved Powys area at a fraction of the price compared to major English cities. Meanwhile, surveillance of Richard Kemp noted his regular 50-mile commutes between his home in Tregaron and Plast Lizin, an old mansion owned by an American friend, Paul Joseph Arnaboldi, in Carno near Llandilois. The mansion was watched by police from an old caravan parked in the driveway of Plast Lizin, and people arriving were monitored. The caravan was not seen as suspicious, as building work was being carried out on a bridge nearby, and workers were often living temporarily around the area as the work was being done. The police were tipped off at a certain time that the mansion would be empty, as Paul Joseph was going away, so Detective Inspector Lee instructed police to break in. The officers broke in through the back of the mansion by removing a door, then they made their way to the cellar and took water samples, which chemically matched LSD samples that the police had collected from around Britain. It soon became obvious that 90% of LSD seized in the UK and 40-60% to 60% of the world market was coming from the same source. This was the breakthrough that Dick Lee wanted, but he decided that he wanted more evidence rather than quick arrests. The surveillance intensified and Kemp's home was now put under 24-hour surveillance and listening devices were installed. As it was the 70s, the technology wasn't as advanced as it is today. There's no such thing as radio transmitters. It meant running a wire from the listening device up a hill and over and then to a secluded place where it could be monitored from the Operation Julie team. 
This worked reasonably well until one day the officers started to hear unusual sounds coming from the cottage, those sounds being Welsh hymns. Turned out a sheep had chewed through the cable, turning it into a radio antennae, which was picking up hymns of praise in Welsh. Despite this, various devices were still being monitored and it transpired that a meeting between Alston Hughes and a man called Russell Stephen Spenceley who lived in the Doved Powys area was scheduled and it was believed a handover of either cash or drugs was due to take place. Even though the details were vague, the police worked out that the meeting was due to take place in the Ram Inn in Lampeter. Officers were deployed to the meeting place and watched as the handover took place. The package contained over 50,000 microdots of LSD. At the time, the biggest seizure of microdots anywhere in the world was 40,000. The police soon realised that this was a mammoth quantity and they were dealing with an operation that was the biggest any police force had ever seen. The police now had a dilemma and the pressure was on. Should they take out the distribution network and draw the inquiry to an end or wait and go for the jugular, the LSD manufacturing operation as well? So the police had also become suspicious of another property at Seymour Road, Thames Ditton, which was believed to be a lab for manufacturing LSD, run by a man called Henry Bartley Todd. The police camped out in a sweltering hot van with just a flask for coffee and tea and a porter potty and observed the property. There was increasing paranoia that their cover was going to be blown as nosy people often looked into the van, which was being seen more and more often in the street. However, the police had two-way mirrors installed instead of windows so they could see out, but no one could see in. Finally, police were now ready to bring the operation to an abrupt halt. Operation Julie reached its climax in March 1977. After 13 months of undercover surveillance, the police raided 87 homes in England and Wales. Over 100 arrests were made and 17 ringleaders were established, with important evidence gathered. At one of the houses used by the gang in Aberystwyth, police found a package hidden in some grass near to a stream. The package contained £11,000 in cash, which in today's money would be over £45,000, and it was all the proceeds of selling LSD. In Richard Kemp's garden, they found equipment used to make tablets, and nearby they also found pure LSD crystals. More crystals were found under the living room floor of the house and police estimated that they were enough to make £13 million worth of LSD, which today is over £57 million. So Operation Julie had grown to be one of the biggest drug busts ever, domestically and internationally. Seizures of the drug were not just confined to Wales, but were taken all over the world, including the Americas, New Zealand and Australia, the Far East and across Europe. The operation came to an end and the ringleaders faced trial at Bristol Crown Court, where due to the complexity of the investigation, it took over a month to give evidence. Kemp and the rest of the gang involved pleaded guilty to, of manufacturing and distributing LSD and were sentenced to a total of 120 years. Kemp was sentenced to 13 years in jail and his girlfriend Christine Bott got 9 years. Unsurprisingly, their relationship didn't survive this jail sentence, but according to all sources, both still live in the UK. Alston Frederick Hughes was sentenced to eight years in prison, and on his release he promptly disappeared, with rumour being his last known whereabouts were India. It was proved that his friend Paul Healy was not part of the LSD ring, he simply had driven Hughes from place to place. 
However, he was sentenced to a year in prison for possession of cannabis. Leif Fielding, who was sentenced to eight years in prison also, observes that the drugs gangs who stepped into the vacuum were far nastier than his own. Having built up another food business and opened an orphanage in Malawi following his release, he says he has no regrets. Nonetheless, he no longer believes in the capacity of LSD to transform the planet, saying, I now realise how unrealistic that was. You can't solve the world's problems with a pill. Obviously some people did suffer, and I don't feel great about that, but some drugs work for some people and others don't. I like a drink with my meal, but I'm not an alcoholic. After the LSD ring was shut down, the price of LSD increased. When the operation was in action, a pill was £1, but after, it escalated up to £5 due to how scarce it had now become. The bust took out 90% of the market of LSD, taking an estimated 13 million tablets that were taken off the market worth around £100 million. Today, people still romanticise about what happened to the rest of the drugs and money, with many believing that it's still hidden somewhere in the Welsh hillsides. 40 years on, there are claims a small batch of the drug was left undiscovered close to the main manufacturing base in Carno. In a statement given at the time, Richard Kemp also claimed that he stashed a significant amount of drugs and money near to the manor house in which one of the main factories was situated. Author Stephen Bentley who wrote the book Operation Julie, says, As far as I'm concerned, it's still there. For the life of me, I can't understand why such a fastidious man like Richard Kemp should fail to mention in his 53-page statement that he moved it to another location. The police who were involved with the case still look back with pride. For them, halting the gang and jailing its leaders was viewed as a massive achievement and subsequent investigations would follow the cross-force example of Operation Julie. Operation Julie arguably represented the final death throes of the 1960s counterculture, conclusively shattering the idealism with which many had once viewed the drug scene, and marking the start of a harsher, more brutal era for the narcotics underworld. In addition, its unprecedented scale and cooperation between forces changed forever the way Britain was policed and set the tone for the so-called War on Drugs of the 1980s. Views about the War on Drugs, in which Operation Julie can be seen as the opening campaign, will always remain divided. But the legacy of a group of hippies in rural Wales still lives on. For the second listener contribution this week, I have the pleasure of bringing a guest piece to you from Julia, the author and creator of one of my favourite blogs, Considering Cold Cases, which I did actually recommend a number of weeks ago in an episode of the show. Episode number 8, I believe. This is a guest piece that we've discussed for a while now, but of course real life and other commitments take preference, and Julia was kind enough to write and research it alongside her own work. And it arrived just in nice time for inclusion into this, my first listener-created episode. Links to Julia's blog will be up in the show notes, and I recommend again checking it out because there's some obscure and excellently written-up cases on there. If you like this show, then I'm sure you'll enjoy the blog. The guest piece presented here today deals with a tragic and as-yet-unsolved murder from the mid-1990s from the city of Bradford. Presented from Considering Cold Cases, we look at the case of the unsolved murder of Mandy Zaney. Bradford, England, was as an international centre of textile manufacture in the 1800s. The Industrial Revolution led a boom in the population and the town quickly became 
the wool capital of the world. As textile manufacture grew, Bradford exploded in population and the town was prosperous. In the middle of the 1900s, the textile sector in Bradford fell into decline and Bradford faced the usual challenges of post-industrial northern England, including deindustrialization, social unrest and economic deprivation. The unemployment rate far exceeded the national average. Racial riots were rife in the mid-1990s. The 1995 Manningham riots saw cars burned out, shops looted and petrol bombs, bricks and bottles were thrown as gangs of young men fought with more than 600 officers in full riot gear in the inner city area of Manningham. Since the 1970s, when it was the hunting ground for the Yorkshire Ripper, Bradford has always had a reputation for its red light areas, but by the 1990s, Bradford had a reputation as one of the country's worst areas for the sale of sex. There was even a TV drama series at the time, Band of Gold, a programme which centred on the lives of a group of sex workers in Bradford's red light district. I remember the programme well. I remember the weird guy with curly hair who had a fetish for wearing rubber gloves in it. It's a good show and if you ever get a chance to watch it, you find it on. Um, look it up. Yeah, it's well worth watching. Children as young as 11 were seen on the streets selling sex. At the time, sex with a young underage girl cost only £5. The attitudes at the time saw these children in the same way as the adult sex workers, but of course they're not the same. Many had been groomed by individuals or gangs who take advantage of young boys and girls from troubled backgrounds and exploit them. During the 1990s, Bradford saw hundreds of young children pimped out by older men who kept them in squalid bedsits. It's now September the 30th, 1995 and a man takes his two children and dog for a walk at Druid's Altar in Bingley, which is just northwest of Bradford, and coincidentally the birthplace of Peter Sutcliffe. This outcropping of rocks looks upon the Air Valley on the southern edge of Bingley, and as the family enjoy their walk, they stumble upon a terrible sight. It was Mandy Zaney, a teenage girl. Her decomposed body was lying in a natural decompression in the ground, and had been covered with branches from nearby trees. The chiffon scarf used to strangle her was still around her neck, and she was fully clothed. When her body was found, the time of death was not clear. It was estimated she had been killed sometime in the past two weeks. So who was Mandy Zaney? Well, the Zaney family were from South Africa. Tammy Zaney was a leader of the Pan-Africanist Congress, a South African black nationalist movement who followed the idea that the South African government should be constituted by the African people owing their allegiance only to Africa. The South African journalist Donald Woods described Zaney as follows. At one stage, he held the Black People's Convention record for solitary confinement, 423 days, and was as tough and as dedicated to the cause as it was possible to be. A big strong man, he looked like a boxing champ, but was one of the biggest brains in the movement. Tammy Zani was assassinated in 1985 on the border between South Africa and Lesotho. His wife, Mercy Zani, took her three young children, a girl, Nobantu, and two boys, Uhuru and Tammy, to Bradford in 1990 following the tragic death of her husband. The youngest, Tammy, was named after his father and born on the day of his funeral. The children attended school while Mercy studied to become a social worker. Nobantu Zani was the middle child, 
She was named after Bantu Stephen Biko, the freedom fighter who died in a South African police cell in 1977. To her friends, she was known as Mandy. She has been described by people who knew her as pretty, polite, gregarious and bubbly. Mandy attended Buttershaw Upper School in Bradford, where school friends described her as being happy and popular. So what went wrong? In February 1995, Mandy was 15 and had started to become uncontrollable. She'd begun to hate Buttershaw Upper School. She found it too rough and was intimidated by her classmates. She eventually adapted to Buttershaw by copying the hard kids and rebelling against her mother, Mercy. Mandy's mother had to leave the house early in the morning to study for a course in social work, which meant that the children were left to get themselves to school, and Mandy often skipped. In the evenings, she also stopped coming home sometimes. Mercy foresaw a desperate future for her daughter due to her changing attitude. I warned her, Mercy said, about this girl I saw on TV, a black girl from Leeds. She died and was found somewhere in South Yorkshire. I said, you'll end up like her. I really did worry. I sent her for counselling. I talked to lots of people. In an effort to control her behaviour, Mercy even tried locking Mandy in their home in Bradford in the evenings, but Mandy would just sneak out through the window. Eventually, Mandy's school attendance became so poor that an education welfare officer was assigned to escort her to school each morning, but Mandy would then disappear from the house before the officer arrived each day. The school welfare officer came to Mercy's home and told her that Mandy was pregnant. Now Mercy had heard the rumours, but said that Mandy was not pregnant, and this has never been proven. The pregnancy rumours were another contributing factor to Mandy skipping school. Mercy was so worried about her daughter, she'd reported her missing to the police at least once. Mercy finally asked social services to take her daughter into care, but they didn't. So Mercy decided to let Mandy stay at a friend's house. She said, this friend of hers used to spend weekends at my house, and Mandy used to spend weekends at her house. One weekend in July, she didn't come back. From July to September, a period of two months, Mercy believed that Mandy was staying with her friend on and off. This was the kind of sad relationship that mother and daughter now had. Now that really is tragic, isn't it, eh? Mandy would sometimes come home to her mother's and change in and out of her school uniform, but she wasn't going to school. She was not even going to her friend's. I went through her diary, Mercy said. Then I realised that she had this boyfriend in the same street. I put a stop to it and she didn't like that. Then she started defying me again. Now on the 9th of September 1995, Mandy went missing again, but this was not considered unusual by now. She was spotted outside the Bradford City Hall catching a bus. Where she was for the next week has never been explained satisfactorily. Mandy was last seen alive on Saturday, September the 16th, 1995, seen at the Kirkgate Shopping Centre in Bradford, chatting with friends. Later that evening, she was at a party at Manningham, where she was drinking heavily. The clothes she wore that day were the same outfit found on her body two weeks later. The mother Mercy waited at home for her to return, but it was not odd for Mandy to disappear. The three-week absence at the start of term was not considered unusual enough to write to Mercy. How absolutely tragic is that? Mandy was last seen alive at the party on September the 16th, 1995, and a decomposed body was found at Druid's Altar, Bingley, on September the 30th. On that day, 
Mercy got a knock at her door of a small terraced house in Bradford. She thought it was Mandy coming home after two weeks staying with friends. It was actually a policewoman at the door. The policewoman said she was checking for fingerprints. You reported a burglary, didn't you? Policewoman asked. Mercy hadn't, and the officer left. The officer had not really been checking for fingerprints that day. She'd been trying a key in the door, a key from the pocket of a body found up on the moors. It fit. Within the hour, officers were back at the house to tell Mercy that her only daughter had been murdered, strangled with her own scarf. Within days, the press were swarming Mercy. The reporters would come at 7am, just wait on the doorstep, Mercy said. They went to neighbours' houses, they went to pubs all over to ask if they'd seen a black person. It was very insensitive of them. I refused to be interviewed by them. It was still too early. I was still trying to absorb the shock of the news. Of course, the press and local community were suspicious of the fact that Mercy didn't want to be interviewed. When she finally did give interviews, she said very little. Mercy received abuse in the street. She became the model of an awful, neglectful mother. She was shunned by neighbours. Tragic Mandizani's mother was warned 40 times about her daughter's truancy, ran the local newspaper headline. I think they were racist in their reporting, Mercy says. There are always children taking parents' credit cards and going abroad, and yet they go on about Mandy's double life. I don't know what a double life is. I hate that labelling. She had a single life, and that's been cruelly taken away from her. Harping on the fact that she was rebellious and played truant deflects from the tragedy of her murder. Meanwhile, police, led by Detective Chief Inspector Tony Whittle, were investigating the circumstances surrounding Mandy's death. Police discovered that Mandy had been spending a significant amount of time in Manningham, an area of Bradford notorious for runaways and prostitution. There were late-night opening cafes with pool tables and pinball machines, a huge purple-fronted nightclub, takeaway pizza kitchens and all-night petrol stations, sanctuaries for bored teenagers. There were also sex shops behind steel shutters on Manningham Lane, sex workers getting cold and hard young men cruising by. Teenagers will always find company in Manningham, said Detective Tony Whittle. Not the right company necessarily. So was Mandy groomed by predators and forced into sex work? Well, since July 1995, Mandy had been hanging around Manningham nearly every night. Mercy had worried that Mandy was getting involved in prostitution. Instead of being at school or a friend's house, Mandy was alleged to be seeing a man that ran brothels in Bradford. Mandy may have been a prime target for predators. The accounts of children groomed in Bradford in the early 2000s named Child A and Child B for legal reasons, have harrowing similarities to Mandy's situation. The two victims came from troubled backgrounds and wanted to feel grown up when they were befriended by men who groomed them by showering them with gifts like alcohol, DVDs, food and occasionally drugs. The combination of inadequate parenting leading to rebellious children lacking supervision provided an opportunity for predators in these instances. While aged just 12 or 13, Child A was passed between some 60 men for sex after being conditioned into thinking it was normal behaviour. Child B sued Buckinghamshire County Council for negligence. Her solicitor said, It is without doubt that if social services had done more to protect the victims and spotted the crucial signs that something was wrong, we wouldn't be here today. Child B said, it's an opportunity for all of us to say to the government and to social services 
whose job it is to protect vulnerable people, that it's time to sit down and listen to our experiences. And I mean actually listen and reflect on what is happening in this country. This would go a long way in helping them to be able to understand the problems that exist, to enable them to prevent things like this from happening to others in the future. So could the government have stepped in to help Mandy? The mother Mercy certainly thinks that they could have. Before Mandy's death, Mercy begged social services to take her daughter into care, but they didn't. They said it was not appropriate in the present economic climate. Mercy was vilified by the media, but was the government let off too easy? Meanwhile, the investigation continued. Police zeroed in on Mandy's friends and acquaintances. Mandy's closest friend was asked to draw up a list of people who may be able to shed light on Mandy's life away from school. Of particular interest for police were the people at the party where Mandy was last seen alive. But a month after Mandy's death, police were no closer to figuring out what happened. The detectives were pulling out all the stops, including staging a reconstruction of the sighting of Mandy at the Kirkgate Shopping Centre in Bradford. Detectives handed out leaflets in the cope of getting some clues about Mandy's death. And in the end, detectives took statements from 425 friends, relatives and acquaintances of Mandy. In 1996, the year after her death, all meaningful lines of inquiry in Mandy's murder were exhausted and the incident room at the police station closed. Two people were arrested and questioned about her murder, but despite extensive inquiries, no one was ever charged. Lead detective Tony Whittle believed that Mandy might have known her killer, but police remained unable to close in on who it might be. There are people who know exactly what happened, Whittle said, but I believe, for whatever reason, those people are not willing to talk. I want to urge those people to come forward and to tell the truth and to allow her family to know, at least, how her tragic death came about. A number of inquests have been involved in this case. Pathologists have struggled to determine the cause of death though. This was due to the state of the decomposition on Mandy's body. She'd likely been dead around two weeks by the time her body was found by the man and his children and dog. In fact, coroners have been unable to say for certain that Mandy had been murdered at all. In 1998, three years after Mandy's murder, an inquest again failed to establish the cause of death. At the inquest... Bradford coroner Roger Whittaker said there was not enough evidence to record a verdict of unlawful killing. He said, Sadly, the only verdict that can be reached is an open verdict. Unless further evidence comes to light, it's unlikely this matter will be reviewed. One can only begin to imagine the anguish felt by the relatives of this young lady who are now faced with an indeterminate verdict. Dr Christopher Milroy, home office pathologist, told an inquest in 1999 that he believed Mandy's death was due to strangulation with a ligature, but there were two other possible causes he could not rule out. She may have died of alcohol intoxication or of a head injury, either accidental or deliberate. The decomposition of the body meant he couldn't be sure. But one thing for sure is that Mandy's body was placed at Druid's altar before being covered in branches. Detective Tony Whittle, who led the murder hunt, told the inquest that Mandy had not died where she'd been found, but had been taken there in a vehicle. He always suspected that Mandy had been murdered, and that the killer may have had local knowledge because of the remote and inaccessible spot where the body was hidden. He also suspected that Mandy was killed by someone she knew. It's far less likely that she was killed by a stranger, he said. Usually where a stranger is involved, a weapon is also involved, and this was not so in the case of Mandy's murder. The theory is also more likely as there was no evidence of sexual assault. 
This leads us to believe that the murderer was known to her and the killer is just as likely to be female as male. Today, Mandy's name, along with dozens of others, appears on a list of West Yorkshire Police's unsolved murders. At the age of 15, she's one of the youngest on the list. Finally here, she's recognised as a victim of murder. The cause of death is not undetermined, it's strangulation. The theory that seems to make the most sense is that Mandy fell in with the wrong crowd and was exploited and pimped out by sexual predators. So Mandy was known to be hanging around a man who ran brothels. While it hasn't been stated outright, this man is likely the same boyfriend who Mandy was spending time with rather than going to school or staying with her friend. Mandy was vulnerable. She was a young girl whose mother was overworked. Mercy raised her three children alone whilst also studying to become a social worker. She was a widow with a limited support network in the United Kingdom. The main source of support in the past had been her mother who still lived in South Africa. Mercy's father had died before she even had children and her husband had been murdered before their third child was even born. So Mandy rebelled like most teenage girls do. She acted out. She started acting like all of the tough girls at her school. She skipped school to hang around a more exciting area of town. And why would she want to go back to school? Where other students spread rumours of her being pregnant and she was, by all accounts, a victim of bullying. Instead of school, Mandy could hang out in Manningham. Who knows what she did there, but even her own mother was worried that she'd been wrapped up in the prostitution scene. In any case, it was clear to her that she could skip school for weeks at a time and no one could control her. She could trick her mother by changing into a school outfit in the morning before sneaking out. The school did nothing. They had such low expectations of her that her three-week absence at the beginning of term was not even reported to her mother. What and who did Mandy find in Manningham? Was she pimped out as a child prostitute by the man who ran brothels? Was she forced to sell her body for perhaps only £10? We don't know. But we do know that down this path Mandy found death. She was last seen at a party in Manningham. Only 15, but already partying in the wrong neighbourhoods, in the clutches of the wrong people. Only 15, but drinking heavily. Only 15, but that party ended in death, strangled by her own scarf. Who knows how many people were involved in Mandy's demise, but no one led the police to her killer. Only 15, but her body was dumped in the woods and crudely covered in branches, left to be discovered by young children on a nature walk. One has to wonder if this same set of circumstances were to happen today, more than 20 years later, would anything be different? Would today's Mandy get the intervention she needed from the government? Would today's Mercy still get ripped to shreds by the media for being a bad parent? Would we consider the possibility that Mandy had been absorbed into the clutches of a sexual predator? Would we have had more sympathy? When asked by a reporter if she feels unlucky, Mercy answers, When I was 21, my father committed suicide. Then my husband was shot dead and then, yes, I do feel unlucky. If Tammy Zanny had survived that attack, said Tony Whittle, referring to Mandy's father's assassination, where would he be now? And what lifestyle would the family have? They could have been living in some splendour in South Africa, certainly not in poor accommodation in Bradford, with the tragedy of Mandy. But Mercy leaves the reporter with this bit of wisdom. Anything that doesn't kill one makes one stronger. You've got to edit the past and start again.
Considering cold cases would like to give a special shout out to the 1996 article in the Independent titled Lord Have Mercy by Andy Beckett which provided invaluable insights to the recounting of this case. My thanks to Gavin and Julia for their contributions in making this week's episode. I appreciate the research that has gone into each. It's been lovely to be able to bring you content from listeners to the show and I've been so pleased to do so. Both are cases that I knew either little or nothing about. I wasn't too familiar with Mandy's murder, but what an especially sad case, isn't it? What a telling of the state of the world we live in today. I'm in no doubt that the answers lie somewhere connected to that murky world of Manningham, but with the absence of any clear witnesses, leads or forensic evidence, it's likely a solution that will remain there. I'd never heard of Operation Julie either. That one is a bit of a departure from the usual content of the episodes on the podcast, but I found both very interesting tales and hope that you have also. It's always good and refreshing to try these things, I think, and it's certainly something I will look to be doing again. So reiterating, if anyone would be interested in researching and writing up a case that you think would be a good subject of an episode of the podcast, then please contact me and let me know your thoughts. I'm all ears. And I'm also all ears to your thoughts on this week's episode then, the listener submitted content. As is standard, there'll be a discussion thread up in the Facebook group and I hope to catch you there to hear these thoughts. So I've had my week off now and I shall be back next week with a case that I've researched and written myself. I hope you can join me then. You can catch me on the usual social media. I'm Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all a happy and safe week and I shall speak to you again soon. Take care, guys. Thanks very much, and goodbye for now.